This is the BBC. This podcast is supported by advertising outside the UK. Hello, I'm Jonathan Dimbleby. Thanks for taking the time to download this edition of Any Questions from BBC Radio 4. Welcome to Coleraine, where the University of Ulster is celebrating its 50th birthday and has invited any questions to join in too. Set in 220 acres of parkland, the campus is close to the mouth of the Ban. Ireland was first settled here 9,000 years ago, but it's the settlement of Coleraine by English and Scots on the orders of James I that explains how the town has been at the heart of Northern Ireland's contested history. I don't know whether it's a reflection of the wry sense of humour here, but the Coleraine campus offers journalists the world's first master's degree in reporting from a hostile environment. (laughs) Whether I need it may well depend on the people you just heard there, our audience and indeed the Any Questions panel. If Diane Abbott is appointed Home Secretary in a future Labour government, her career in public service will have come full circle. Diane began as a civil servant at the Home Office, the first black British woman in the House of Commons. She was returned for the eighth time last year by the voters of Hackney and Stoke Newington with 75% of the votes cast. But you're here in Northern Ireland. Are you going to be able to get back in time for the Labour Live Festival, Diane? I hope so. (laughs) Robert Buckland may yet have to face the music over his role in this week's negotiations, which averted defeat for Theresa May. Robert, the Solicitor General, brokered a deal with those Tory MPs who want Parliament to have a voice if the UK fails to reach a deal with the EU over Brexit. What emerged wasn't what they were expecting. Some now speak of betrayal and a breach of trust. Regarded as one of the more pro-European of Conservatives before he became a minister, he belongs to an even more exclusive group. The first Tory in living memory, he says, to win a council election in Clanethley. Though to win a seat at Westminster, he had to travel east along the M4 to Swindon. If she wants advice on dealing with the recalcitrant and the rebellious, Theresa May could turn to her parliamentary allies, the Democratic Unionist Party. It's been reported that they've taken to fining Assembly members and MPs £100 if they failed to toe the line, which could have proved expensive for Jim Wells, a long-standing <laughs> member of the Northern Ireland Assembly, and at one point the health minister. Jim has a reputation for being outspoken. Currently, he's had the DUP whip suspended, but he's kindly stepped in at very short notice when the party's representative had to pull out. Alicia McCallion is the first Sinn Féin candidate to win foil in 100 years. She defeated the SDLP. As a result, there is now no nationalist as opposed to Republican MP in the Commons at all. Before being elected as an MP, she had replaced the late Martin McGuinness as one of the city's Assembly members. Because the Assembly was suspended, she was unable to take her seat. Good preparation, though, for life as an MP. Sinn Féin never take their seats at Westminster. Ladies and gentlemen, your Any Questions panel. And let's have our first question, please. Thank you. Uh, Clem McCartney. If the UK government cannot understand and reach agreement with its own backbenchers, what hope is there that they can communicate with, understand and reach agreement with opponents? Clem, thank you very much. Diane Abbott. Well, it has been a very strange situation, which hopefully... Robert Buckland, the Tory Solicitor General on the panel, can illuminate. We had some highly contentious and difficult votes on Brexit last week. And in order to avoid being defeated, it would appear that Theresa May has promised one thing 
to people that support Brexit, and another thing to Remainers led by Ken Clark. Now, how this gets resolved, maybe only Robert Buckland can tell us, but the truth is we have no white paper on the government's negotiating position, which they've promised us for some time. And they have a very important meeting with EU partners at the end of this month. This is a difficult issue for both parties, but there's no question that the Tory position on Brexit at the moment is a shambles. And it's a disservice to the people of Britain, and in particular, the people of Northern Ireland. And you will have heard you will have heard that the Foreign Secretary, Boris Johnson, talking about the border, which must be an important issue for many people in this audience, said that talk about the effect of Brexit on the Irish border was the tail wagging the dog, which shows you how much the Tories care about Northern Ireland. Diane, just on the the question, you alluded to the difficulties for both major parties. Um, Your party split three ways on the... Uh, the EEA amendment, whether or not uh, the UK should remain part of the European economic area once it leaves the EU. I mean, 90 Labour MPs rebelled against the leadership line, 71 ways 15 another, roughly that proportion. But uh, on the Conservative side, it was only three MPs who voted against. I yes. wonder who's more divided. Yeah, well, that's a short-term thing, because sooner or later, Theresa May has to make good her promise to the Brexiters or good her promise to the Remainers. And yet it's a difficult issue, that's what I said. Because for the Labour Party in particular, because we have the top 10 pro-Remain constituents, which includes mine, and the top 10 pro-Brexit constituencies. So what we're trying to do is to hold not just our supporters, but the country together. What Theresa May's focus seems to be on is holding the Tory party together. But I would say that is at the country's expense. We'll hear from Robert Buckland in a moment. Jim Wells, uh, your party, the party you were elected to represent at least, is allied to the Conservatives at Westminster. What do you make of the events in the light of Clem's question about the apparent government's apparent inability to negotiate with its own backbenchers? Oh, what I can say is Theresa May has, will have no trouble with the DUP. The DUP yeah, is an avowed Brexit party. We're totally united on that issue. I think the numbers keep changing, but I understand at the last count there were 59 votes <coughs> in Brexit. 46 of those were won by 10 or fewer votes. And that was the DUP vote. So the DUP have delivered on every vote the will of the people, and the DUP will continue to do that. So there's no internal uh, problems within the party. We're absolutely united and will continue to deliver the will of the people, which is to leave the European Union. And the sooner that happens, the better, as far as I'm concerned. Alicia McCallion for Sinn Féin. Of course, uh, Jim actually isn't talking about the will of the people here in the North because everyone knows the people in the North. The people in the North voted overwhelmingly to remain within the European Union. So it's a nonsense to suggest that the DUP are over there in Westminster talking about the will uh, of the people here in the North. For, for, for our party, we, we know that Theresa May and her Brexiteers will be fixated uh, <coughs> with the problems that they have internally and how it's going to pan out in England. That's why we have taken our fight quite uh, firmly to where we believe that the, deci- the decision makers will hear the Irish voice, and that is to the other member states. So we've been on a political offensive in Europe. We have been talking to the Europeans about protection of the Good Friday Agreement. 
20 years ago uh, last month, we signed the Good Friday Agreement here in the North. It's a very proud document. It's the accord that brought peace uh, to Ireland as a whole. And it's something that we all need to ensure that we protect. Unfortunately, the moment Theresa May went into government with the DUP, what she did was, for a start, uh, as a co-guarantor of the Good Friday Agreement, both governments are due to remain impartial. Going into the government with the DUP clearly indicated that, that she had signed off on, on power sharing at that stage. Given that decision made by the British Prime Minister, <clears throat> Sinn Féin could, of course, have made a difference to that, couldn't it, by taking its seats at Westminster for the first time? As Jim yes, was suggesting, many of these votes have been won by fewer than a majority, smaller than a majority of ten, ten or less. There are seven uh, Sinn Féin MPs elected at the last general election a year ago. That would have effectively been 14 votes uh, difference in the result. And Leah Varadkar, the Irish Prime Minister, says Sinn Féin could have had the opportunity to make things better for Ireland if it had taken its seats. There are two fundamental points that seem to be of missed uh, by a number of commentators when we look at the issue of abstentionism. One is, as a party, we stand as abstentionists, so the electorate know very clearly when they vote for a member of Sinn Féin that they're voting for a member who will not sit in Parliament. But very clearly what happened last June in this island was for the first time since the partition of this country the people, the nationalist people of the North turned their back (coughs) on Westminster. That was very evident given the fact that there is no nationalist now who sits uh, at Westminster. In relation to... uh, So is abstentionism more important then than preventing a hard Brexit? As I said already, we have taken the fight to ensure that the Irish people's rights are protected to where we believe that that fight can be won. And that is within the EU member states and indeed the Irish government. The Irish government have a very important role to play in all of this and we have been working very closely uh, with our colleagues in the Doyle to ensure that the Irish government remain committed to ensuring that the Good Friday Agreement is protected in all of its parts. Robert Buckland, uh, I've talked about your role in all this. Uh, You are the Solicitor General, you're a government minister, but you've also been seen as a sort of honest broker in the negotiations between the two sides. Clem McCartney says if the UK government cannot understand and reach agreement with its own backbenchers, what hope is there of communicating with other people involved in this, including, of course, the rest of the EU? That's a fair criticism, isn't it? Well, Clem's right to focus upon the real negotiation, which is the negotiation between the UK and the European Union. That is the most important uh, thing to focus on. And remembering in that, and I think it's incumbent upon everybody who wants to get this right, we have to understand it from the point of view of the Europeans as well. I think there's been a bit of a tendency in all of this, and and the media are part of it as well, to turn this debate into some sort of internal psychodrama. And I don't think that serves the people of the UK. I don't think that actually helps us in the negotiation. I'm not uh, dismissing the events in Westminster last week. It's the biggest piece of constitutional legislation that we've had to pass in nearly 50 years. And you were facing defeats on a critical Uh, part of it. But we won every vote, and mostly with majorities of more than 20. And frankly, the story of the second day of the votes was the uh, three-way split in the Labour Party, which has already been mentioned. But I want to come back to where we are. People said that we couldn't actually get our way out of phase one last year. We did. We got that joint report. 
People said that we couldn't sort out the implementation period, phase two, by March. We did. We've sorted that. We're now into the critical phase three, the future relationship. So what I'm playing my part in doing is sorting out the domestic legal framework. At the same time, ministers and civil servants are working their way through this process, negotiating in Brussels. The white paper will be produced after the regular summit, which is coming up uh, at the end of June. That's a part of the regular European Council cycle. Uh, And I think the really important time in all of this will come later in the year when the final decisions will have to be made. This is difficult, folks. This is not easy. I'm not pretending it's a walk in the park. But believe you me, the idea that somehow there is a lack of purpose here and a lack of focus is not the reality, I can assure you. It seems from your colleagues, not least the former Attorney General Dominic Grieve, who you were negotiating with because he put forward this amendment that the government didn't want, and it was coming up with a a better deal, and... uh, he thought he had a better deal, and he said on Radio 4 last night on The World Tonight he felt like he'd experienced a slap in the face. Tom Newton, dumb political editor of The Sun, tweeted when this apparent deal was being made, apparently briefed by government. It's certainly political journalists say they were briefed by government. Can't speak for Tom. Deal is government agrees the Commons will be able to direct Brexit negotiations if there is no deal with the Europe. A veto is ceded to MPs on how it proceeds from then onwards. Was that not the case? I mean, look, the, the who said what to whom doesn't no, get us no, anywhere. It, it does matter. Forgive me, it does matter because your colleagues will have to face this decision again next week because we're told that the amendment is going down. The government's put down an amendment, and that was supposed to be an amendment negotiated in good faith with the Remainer MPs like Dominic Grieve. And, and now can, he's saying it's slap in the face. Well, I, I can say that the, the, uh, the discussions were in very good faith, and I'm sorry that Dominic was ultimately disappointed by what was produced. In large measure... Is it measure, correct that there was something uh, on, on paper? Sean. Is it correct that there was something on paper that it's not just a verbal agreement, that there were words written down which the government set out what its position Look, would be? This question about agreements, let's get this right. The government holds the reins on what amendment it wants to uh, put down... Uh, There are options that need to be considered and the government made a final decision. What I will say about where we got to was that in some measure what Dominic had proposed was actually incorporated in the amendment. Where we have this disagreement is the amendability of the motions that will be put to Parliament if we get to either an announcement of no deal Mm. or just an ampass by the 21st of January of next year. The question, therefore, is a very narrow one. Can you have a meaningful vote... If, an, if a motion cannot be amended? Yeah, well, of course you can, because there's a political effect to motions in Parliament. Do you know when Neville Chamberlain fell as Prime Minister and Winston Churchill became Prime Minister, the Norway debate, do you know what the motion was? This House do now adjourn. So let's not get too carried away about uh, every jot and tittle of who said what to whom and the narrow point just, that we're now at. Just before I bring Diane Abbott back in, because she's itching to get in on this, perhaps not surprisingly, I just want to be absolutely clear about this. You are saying that Theresa May did not mislead those MPs she saw and told them she could tr- they could trust her, that she didn't change anything... Does that mean that somebody else in government changed the the agreement you had reached? What was promised was a discussion and then the tabling of an amendment in the Lords. That was done. That was delivered. 
The, the processes of discussing with colleagues are, of course, going to involve a number of people and it's going to be uh, an iterative process. It needs to be a debate and a discussion. A debate a within government as well, well then. Course, it wasn't the case of the Prime Minister being a sort of, look, trust me. What she's um, actually saying is, no, I've got to go back and consult other people. Uh, well, look, look, this is a democracy. We're living in a lively democracy in a minority House of Commons. Now, you know, that's the reality within which we operate. Frankly, let's actually stop Um, moaning about it and actually rejoice for a moment in the fact that the House of Commons really matters in all of this. I think that's a good thing for democracy. And certainly in my participation in the debates, I have revelled in that. I'll say this finally, Sean. Look, we are are at a position now where the Lords need to get on with the job on Monday. Let's see what they produce. Indeed. As you said, a lively week of Westminster could be even livelier next week. Diane Abbott. I just wanted to come back on what Robert said about the most important thing is the negotiation. That's absolutely correct. That's why it's so concerning the government has not produced its white paper on its negotiating position and will not produce it before the meetings with EU heads at the end of the month. But the point I wanted to make was this. I went with the leader of my party, Jeremy Corbyn, to his very first meeting with Barnier, the EU head on these matters. And the first thing he mentioned as one of the conditions for a successful negotiation was a resolution of the issue on the border. Now, we have a solution to that, which means staying in a customs union. The Tories, and the DUP for that matter, have yet to come forward with a sustainable solution to the problem of the enormous difficulty that would be posed by having a hard border. They don't have a solution. Let me briefly, Robert, and then bring in I think... I, mean, I think Diane's memory is, with respect to her, very selective. The government has produced a raft of policy papers yeah. that have helped inform the process. The new white paper will be a further consolidation of that. And can I say this about Labour's position and it will on be a policy, uh, customs it, it, union? Sorry, it of will course be, it will, it will be. be a policy. It right. doesn't actually answer the real question here, which is, that so far, the EU have said, yeah, you can have a border, but it's got to be in the Irish Sea. That is not no, acceptable. No, no, An not. east-west border is not acceptable. We are not As unionists, we believe in the United Kingdom. And we believe in the will of the, of the people of Northern Ireland and, and, and Great Britain. We want to make sure that that border is not hard. That is our red line in all of this. And we've been clear from the start. Labour have been all over the place on no. this. Poor Keir Starmer. He's like a barrister with a client who can't make up his mind what well, his instructions are. You would know about <laughs> that as shop. another barrister. Alicia McCallion. Firstly, I just want to make a point in relation to Robert's uh, latter point uh, around the border in the Irish Sea. No one is suggesting any such thing. Uh, It would be the use of the current infrastructure that is currently there. So this nonsense that there would be some sort of border between East and West is just that. It's nonsense. I have been listening for two years, nothing but fluff coming from the government, suggesting that there would be no hard border. There is one way and one way only that that can happen, and that is if the North remains as is. The backstop that the European Union have put forward specifically for the North, not for the entire UK, is the only way in which we will avoid any type of border, soft or hard, because be very clear on this, there is no such thing as a soft border. Technology 
if, if, if such technology did in fact exist, which I don't believe for a second it does, okay. but if it exists, you had the chief constable of the PSNI recently say... Police that service any, in Northern Ireland. The police yeah. service, service in the North has very clearly <laughs> said... <laughs> I said that not just to finish your point. Yeah. But he made the point very clearly. He made the point very clearly that any type of infrastructure that would be placed in a border region would be attacked, in his words, would be attacked, and should it be soft to start with, it would ultimately remain or, or devolve to hard. So there's no other solution apart from the North to remain as is, like the people voted. Can I make one small very point? Very briefly, you and then we we'll talk about on. democracy, Robert. You talk about democracy, yet the fact that people seem to miss in all of this is even if every single eligible electorate here in the North was to vote to remain, it would have made no difference in relation to the final vote. So how is that democracy? How is that democracy? It's against the will of the people. That sounds like a philosophical point that some of our callers may want to pursue in any answers. That's after the Saturday edition of Any Questions. You can call Anita Arnand on 03700 100 444. The line's open at 12.30. Email any.answers at bbc.co.uk. Tweet us using the hashtag BBCAQ and, of course, follow the debate as it takes place at BBC Any Questions. The text is 84844. I don't expect you to remember all that. I couldn't. It's written on a card for me. And so I'll say it again before the end of the programme. Let's move on. Thanks to Clem for his question. Our next question, please. Uh, David Johnson. Um, abortion legislation is a devolved matter. Is it right, right for Westminster to intervene? Alicia McCallion. No, I don't believe that it is. Uh, I believe that uh, we should be legislating for it here in the North. There's clearly uh, an issue in relation to the current <coughs> legislation. Uh, people will be very familiar with the referendum that happened in the South a number of weeks ago where very clearly the overwhelming majority of people voted in favour of repealing the Eighth Amendment. There are issues here that need to be addressed. Uh, we have had discussions over the years in the Assembly and numerous reports and I firmly believe that we need harmonisation uh, within the island when it comes to the issue of women's health care. And we need to be very compassionate on how, how we actually deal with this. And during the repeal campaign in the South, there was lots of, of, of different experiences of women who have went through horrific ordeals and have not been able to access proper health care. Uh, we heard them all uh, during the campaign, and I believe that it is the responsibility for the executive here to legislate to ensure that people in the in the north receive the, the same rights as our, our comrades in the in the south. Uh, Jim Wells, this has uh, also been raised in the context, of course, of power sharing, yes. and the fact there is no power sharing at the moment. It hasn't been for 17 months. The greatest stain in the UK character is the fact that since 1967, 9.2 million unborn children have had their lives terminated in England, Scotland and Wales. Because we don't have that legislation in Northern Ireland, there are 102,000 people alive today in Northern Ireland who wouldn't be if we had abortion in demand. That means there's 17 people in this audience tonight who are alive today who wouldn't be if we had abortion in demand. The average woman in Britain having an abortion is 32, married and has two children already. These aren't crisis pregnancies, these are inconvenient pregnancies. And I believe the vast majority of people in Northern Ireland Shame. do not want that legislation extended to this part of the UK 
It's a decision for the Assembly. The Assembly made that decision in February 2016 that we didn't want any change. We want to protect life. And I I believe that's where we stand. And I do not want to see abortion in demand in this part of the UK. Diane Abbott, the... The referendum in the Republic of Ireland has obviously raised the question of Northern Ireland's different legislative bases, both different in terms of the UK and different in terms of the Republic. Your Labour colleague Stella Creasy is trying to get uh, the, 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 the Act of Parliament in Westminster that partly applies, a 19th century Act, because the Abortion Act doesn't apply to, as Jim was saying, to Northern Ireland. Is it something where Westminster should intervene? First, let me say that abortion is a very sensitive and personal matter, and we should all be careful of the language that we use. We debated it a week or so ago in Parliament, and it was actually a a Conservative woman MP who got up and spoke about her own abortion in in a context of medical difficulties she had. And that was followed by a DUP MP talking about throwing babies in the bin. I think on both sides of the House, we felt that wasn't appropriate language. When a woman... When a woman had just got up and spoken about something so personal and so sensitive, of course, what we would want is for the assembly to be functioning and to look at this issue. And we polling have. shows. Two years ago, we did. But there's you, been an you, assembly election since then, hasn't there? make the same decision again. Well, if you let me finish, what we would want is for the Assembly to be functioning and to look at this this issue again. And there are issues which polling shows in Northern Ireland they would want to see a harmonisation of the abortion position. But the best um, solution, if the Assembly is not going to function would be to reconvene the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. And that conference could look at the issue. Nobody, least of all the British Labour Party, wants to impose solutions on Northern Ireland. But this is such an emotive issue, such a personal issue. There is this idea sometimes with people like Jim that you don't trust women, that we're not supposed to be able to make um, decisions about our own bodies. You called abortion the equivalent of a Nazi holocaust. That seems to me unsuitable language. We have to trust women. We have to look at the human rights aspect. And if the Assembly won't reconvene, then I say let's try and bring together the British-Irish Intergovernmental Conference. That's wrong. (laughs) Let let me just just very briefly clarify that, because that quote has been used about you before. We we have killed uh, 20 times more unborn babies in the United Kingdom than those we lost in the Second World War. 20 times more people. That's your, your figures now. Robert Buckland. Well, I've got to wear two hats here because apart from being Solicitor General for England and Wales, I'm one of the law officers for the UK government here in Northern Ireland. And I think uh, we have to respect the devolution settlement here. Uh, This was a devolved matter. It has to be settled by the Assembly here in Northern Ireland. Does that mean, sorry to interrupt, does that mean, just clarify, that if uh, the Northern Ireland Assembly never meets again, 
the Westminster Parliament, it would be inappropriate for the Westminster Parliament to intervene. Well, I don't want to ally two issues about uh, uh, what might well, happen. I'm just with, asking with you a legal, legal question. Well, look, I, look, I think I think that um, uh, you know people people's voices are being heard, and there is something else that's happened. Actually, there was a Supreme Court decision last week. It was on quite a technical issue about the Northern Ireland Human Rights uh, Agency and their ability to apply. I won't, won't bore you with that. But what the Lordship said, although it was um, on the margins, it was part of the decision itself was that there were concerns that in fact the article 8 rights the privacy rights the right the rights of women in northern ireland are on issues of abortion in the case of rape incest fatal fetal abnormality were not being respected now it seems to me that whatever your views about conception and i think conception begin uh, life begins at conception abortion is a fundamental right for women to be able to choose and govern what happens to and their what own about the bodies. Right of the child? What right does that child have? Uh, Jim, what I'm going to say, I've given you three very important and grave examples where women have been put through hell and have to make really dif- difficult choices. I mean, the idea that abortion is some sort of casual throwaway choice is for the birds. It is not. It is the most grave choice a woman can make. And I think that where we have a situation where women in Northern Ireland travel to the mainland and get abortion services there, that frankly makes the whole thing an organised hypocrisy. And I think there should be uniformity. Alicia McKenna, McKenna, I'll ask you to be brief if you can. Okay, uh, a quick point. Whilst I categorically disagree with what Jim Wells has said and his position in relation to abortion, I respect the right for you to have your opinion. Where I draw the line is when your opinion then means that we can't legislate for women's rights. I think clearly there's been an issue for years here in relation to the use of the church, uh, the, the connection between the church and the state. We need to clearly separate church and state. We need to legislate for everyone. And I... I have no issue with Jim Wells or, in fact, the DUP holding personal positions when it comes to all of these rights-based issues, whether it's LGBT rights, whether it's women's rights, whether it's language rights. Where I draw the line is when you hold a veto to, to uphold rights for everyone. Does that apply within your party as well? Because some of your colleagues are worried that at the Ardesh this <coughs> weekend, the party conference... Sinn Féin is proposing a policy where it's saying effectively the executive will decide what the policy is and every Sinn Féin person has to sign up to that policy. And there doesn't seem to be the freedom of choice, the freedom of conscience for those who sincerely in your party, like Jim, oppose abortion. No, of course, there's, there, there are different opinions in every party. But what is unique about our party is that we will actually dictate our policy tomorrow at our annual conference. So tomorrow is the time for our membership to have their say on the position. And after not that, just they have to this, shut up. Not just on this, but on all issues. What we do, we're a very democratic party. You have your right to vote. You have your right to speak tomorrow the policy will be dictated by the membership and then we will take it from there thank you all very much and thank you very much to david for the question as well we'll move on to our next question please uh karen breslin do you consider that the rollout of universal credit has been an unmitigated disaster Diane Abbott, this follows uh, the report from the national audit office released today which suggested that universal credit may never achieve the savings and improvements that were promised. Uh, And it says that um, 
it will be impossible for the Department for Work and Pensions ever, able ever to measure whether it has achieved its goal of getting 200,000 people off benefits and into work. Um, in response to Karen, yes, it has been an unmitigated disaster. And the worst thing is, this was an impending disaster that the government was warned against time after time. The Labour Party has said for some time that they should pause universal credit and try and fix the problems. The issue is that in principle, the idea of rolling a lot of different benefits into one payment makes some sense. But what has happened is the Tories have tried to do it on the cheap. They have slashed the monies available. And so you've got a situation, this is not just a technical problem, there are thousands of people who haven't been able to get the money they need, who are suffering all sorts of problems because of the problems with this rollout. And the government was warned and the government didn't listen and so you have a situation where the, the, the NAO, which is scarcely some kind of left-wing radical organisation is saying this has been a disaster and they do not know if it can be fixed. Jim Wells. Um, There's some aspects of universal credit I think we would have welcomed. First of all, the concept that you will always be better in work than unemployed. And I think that's an important concept that's recognising universal credit. Secondly, many of us have felt very uneasy that it was possible to bring, say, £23,000 a year home on benefits when if you had to work to achieve that, you'd have to earn 30000 And it did seem unfair you had two families side by side, one bringing home 23000 uh, for just basically signing on and the other having to work very hard for it. But there have been problems. Now, we're only just having universal credit rolled out in Northern Ireland. For instance, it only came to South Down, my own constituency, in May. So we haven't direct experience of what's happening, but we can learn from what's ha- happening in England and there are real problems with delays people having to wait five weeks for, for any form of money. But at least the Assembly and the much derided Assembly did negotiate mitigating, mitigating factors to ensure that the impact upon the people of Northern Ireland was less than the rest of the United Kingdom. <coughs> but we just have to wait to see how it rolls out. I would be slightly despondent. I, the storm clouds ahead on this issue, and it's going to cause an enormous workload to MLAs and MPs in Northern Ireland, no question about it, and we're watching very carefully because the impact could be very severe on our population. So for you, the jury is still out. We, we haven't enough experience yeah. yet of it. Alicia McCallum. Whilst it mightn't have been rolled out in many constituencies here in the North, I think it's clear uh, by the examples of what's happening in England that it has been disastrous, and in fact, we have called once again this week for it to be halted. And whilst I agree with Jim in relation to the mitigation measures uh, that were put in place uh, by the executive, unfortunately, it's never enough. We need to go back to the core of what, what this was about. This, in my opinion, is, is austerity-led, plain and simple. It was never about anything else. I, I think if you look fundamentally about how uh, this came about, uh, and, and look at who brought it about and why they brought it about, you'll soon come to the realisation that it was not about anything other than trying to get more people off the state and, in fact, uh, leave those who are most vulnerable uh, to, 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 to put them further away uh, from from uh, the workforce. In relation to... In relation to the mitigation uh, package that was put forward by the executive, you know, we, we do have to welcome the fact that there was £485 million that was secured. But this is a Tory-led policy. Uh, we resisted it 
for a long time in, in the, the Assembly, and I think the position that we have taken this week again in calling for the British government to halt it before it does come into each and every one of our constituencies, and we are faced with the, 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 the problems that is be currently being faced in England. I think it's been a disaster, and I think it needs to be stopped now. Robert Buckland, as well as being Solicitor General, you're obviously a constituency MP. Yeah. Uh, what has been the impact on your constituents in Swindon? Uh, will they have seen it as an unmitigated disaster, those who are using it? Well, we've had rollout, and in my casework, I've dealt with a number of problems that constituents have had with, with the system. But can I say this? I've also dealt with quite a number of successes. And when you look at the overall impact of universal credit, and Diane's right, she's right, the principle was supported by both the main parties. And the concept, just to deal with Alicia's point about austerity, this concept's been long in the germination. It was being developed and thought about and considered by the previous Labour government. The coalition then brought it in. The question, therefore, is implementation. How does it work? Now, the NAO, as, as Diane says, it's a, a very important institution, it's looking back, it was looking back at how things hadn't gone as well as they should have in certain key respects. What has happened earlier this year was that the government has recognised particular problems with waiting times and has invested a further £1.5 billion in particular to deal with the lag in the housing element which was causing uh, some problems and hardship to people uh, I mean, uh, when it came to that benefit. Just so that people are aware of what we're talking about and, and drawing on the report, I mean, as recently as 2017, last year, a quarter, that's 113,000, a quarter of new claims were being paid late. 40% of claimants, according to the NEO, waited 11 weeks for their first payment. 8% waited almost eight months. In and terms of implementation problems... Those are pretty serious, aren't they? Particularly for people who have no other source of income. I recognise those figures. The government have taken action and now we're seeing a vastly improved rate uh, from those figures. It's important to remember as well, Sean, that you know, we've got the highest employment level in 40 years, more women in work than ever before, almost a million more people with disabilities in work, hugely empowering for them, and also a million uh, fewer uh, workless households. It, you know, this concept that Jim mentioned about work being better than uh, reliance on benefits and work also being supplemented by benefits, which is, of course, part of the UC system as well, is hugely empowering for people. And rather than just abandoning this transfer to UC, we should be refining it, improving it, recognising and listening to the concerns of people, but moving ahead to unify that system to make it, in the long run, simpler and better for families. What do you make, then, of, of Louise Casey, who was telling the World at One today on Radio 4, that, in her view... Uh, the government has not been listening. And one of the problems is that, uh, you said, in, in empowers people and makes them see the value of work. She says it's actually pushing a lot of people further into debt. And that for ministers to have ignored that fact makes her actually angry that she says people in position like that could do something about it and they're not doing it. Well, I haven't heard Louise's full interview, but what I will say to it's her... It's worth listening back to, I, I will, me. I will. Um, Louise on Casey is somebody who's had quite it. an impact on public service and, and uh, in, certainly in, in, in 
in England and Wales. But what I would say is that we have acted. You know, earlier this year, we invested that extra one and a half billion. We've reduced those waiting times. We are listening and we are taking action. And if there are more changes and refinements that need to be made, that that process will continue. You know, you you don't give up on something as important as this uh, when we're down the road. You get it right. You keep going and you get it right for those people and families who deserve and need uh, and are entitled to that support. Thank you very much. Thank you, Karen, for the question. Let's move on to our next question, please. Peter Woodhead. Should Theresa May adopt the approach of the DUP and fine MPs who speak out against party (laughs) policy? Diane Abbott. (laughs) (laughs) Well, well, to be perfectly honest, um, a few years ago... I was someone who spoke out against party policy, whether it was the Iraq war or um, uh, tuition fees and so on, and I wouldn't have liked to have been fined. However, I can see how, at this point, when the Tories... I mean, even her own foreign secretary is saying that Donald Trump would be able to handle the EU negotiation better. <laughs> I wish, I'm sure that she wishes that if she couldn't find anybody else, she could find Boris Johnson. <laughs> Alicia McCallion. Well, she would need to have a very deep purse, <laughs> just to say that uh, firstly. But it's not for me to tell any political party how they should manage uh, their, their elected representatives. Um, I think that's something that each individual party should take on note. As I said, as we speak right here, right now, our party are in Belfast discussing policies. Everyone gets their opportunity to put forward their thoughts. We vote on it democratically, and that's the party position. That's how we work. But as I say, it's not for me to tell anyone else how they should deal with their own parties. Robert Buckland. No, I think to give you a direct answer, although the thought might have crossed her mind recently. But look, uh, look, you know, an MP or, or a representative, you know, their vote is is theirs, right? You know, the whipping system is important. It, politics is a team activity. You cannot get things done unless you work with colleagues to achieve things. And I know, you know, Diane would agree with that. Working together, trying to bring people together. She's quite rightly acknowledged that it's not been these, that easy in her party, uh, and certainly not easy of late. But coming back to the point, um, whilst we work as a team and we're better working as a team, the end of it, you know, an MP's vote is their voice. It's what, it's, it's what, they, what validates them as an elected representative. And tying that to some sort of financial incentive is, uh, you know, just being a bit serious for a moment, a, a little sinister, shall I say. <laughs> Jim, <laughs> Jim Wells, do you think your party's being sinister? Or have no, they, they no. hit upon the solution of no. party funding? Every party has some form. Every party has some form of discipline. I'll give you two recent examples. There are three SDLP councillors on Belfast City Council voted on an issue of conscience on abortion. They abstained, and they were immediately cast out of the party. There was a, a, a Sinn Féin MP who happened to say he preferred one local council model to another, and he was suspended for six months. Our system is that if you step aside and do something wrong, you get a small fine. I must say I prefer the fine to being suspended or being thrown into, out of darkness. So we're kidding ourselves. And equally, uh, Sinn Féin are tomorrow going to make a decision on abortion. 
dare <coughs> help anybody in that party if they to adopt a pro-life stance after tomorrow's conference. And we'll see how they'll be punished if they de- so, dare to defend the unborn child. You're not worried then that... Uh, if the whip is restored, you might find this a rather expensive policy, <laughs> given your track well, record. Yes, I don't think my bank manager would be too happy. But, you know, frankly, I, I, it's, 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 it's not regarded as a big issue within the party. And it's been well known for years. And I just don't honestly see why it's such a big issue in this last week. Okay. Our next question, please. Uh, Barbara Dempsey. Who will Scottish, Welsh and Northern Irish people support in the World Cup? <laughs> <laughs> Alicia McCallion. That's a sore question. <laughs> Very sore. Well, I, I actually come from a, a really united community. So every year or every two years, we would do a draw, whether it's a, a World Cup draw or a European Championship. So I, this year, have got Tunisia. So that's <laughs> where <Sorry>. my <laughs> nails will be firmly for Tunisia. And it's solely for p- financial purposes in relation to <laughs> Jim Wells. I've been a Northern Ireland supporter for 45 years. I saw the great George Bless play many times, and I don't think there's anybody in this room could say that. Uh, you're all much younger than me. <laughs> and, and what I would say is that obviously Northern Ireland didn't qualify. We were robbed. We were robbed. <laughs> that was... That was never a penalty. But as Iceland play in red, white and blue, I know who I'm supporting. <laughs> I've heard Iceland mentioned on a number of occasions as a, as a good, key, uh, good team to support. Plenty of opportunities there. Robert Buckland. Well, of course. As a know, Welshman. As a Welshman. I mean, Wales's last appearance in the World Cup was 1958. Uh, we did very well. We got to the quarterfinals. And let's not forget the European Championships where we got to the semi-finals two years ago. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, thank you. Round of applause. Quite <laughs> right. Um, though, however, this time, uh, you know, I think I do have to support my near neighbours uh, and my constituents who will be supporting <laughs> England. Though I have to say, in the Attorney General's office, sweep, I've drawn Panama. Oh, dear. Oh, dear. <laughs> Give as much hope as me. <laughs> Diane Abbott. Well, I can't, I can't speak, uh, I'm afraid, to what Scottish, Northern Ireland or Welsh people should support in the World Cup. I am, of course, I am, of course, English, and I will be supporting England. I suppose we could have asked a supplementary question about who you will support if England is knocked out. <laughs> Let's ask our questioner finally who, who she thinks they should be supporting and who you will, more importantly, who will you be supporting? Oh, well, I'm not really into football at all. <laughs> I was just, I was glad to see all of them out because that means I might get control of the remote. Wishful <laughs> <laughs> thinking. Yeah, I think there might be a few battles to come over the remote control in homes, the length and breadth of the UK. That is any questions for this week. Thank you very much for your company. Thank you to the University of Ulster for hosting us. Jonathan Dimbleby will be in the chair next week. He will be at Highbridge Community Hall in Somerset. A reminder, though, that after the Saturday in edition of Any Questions, you can call Any Answers and talk to Anita Arnand. The number is 03700 100 444. 
lines open at 12.30 and you can email Anita, any.answers at bbc.co.uk. My thanks to my panel here, Diane, Robert, Alicia and Jim. And more importantly, to our audience here for being a tremendous audience with great questions and to you listening at home. From all of us at Any Questions at the University of Ulster in Coleraine in Northern Ireland. Goodbye. I hope you enjoyed Any Questions this week. To find out more about the programme or how you can get us to come to your area, then go to the BBC Radio 4 website and search for Any Questions.